So, uh, yeah, um, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, did everybody have a good Christmas? Nobody had a good Christmas. Okay, we'll work on next year then. If you're new here, welcome, and uh, we'd like to get to know you. If you have children and you, you want to send them back, you, you can. If you want to keep them with you, you can more than welcome to do that as well. Um, we're okay with distractions. And I, I've always figured that you're never going to stop a hungry heart. People who are easily distracted usually aren't very hungry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick, I know David uh, announced this already, but maybe some of you guys didn't hear it. But normally we have um, home groups, which is um, a communal-based relationship we have with one another. We, we like to create a culture in church other than Sunday morning experience. Sunday morning experience is not even um, a biblical reality. It's something that we've created, that we do because it's our culture, but it's not the biblical model. The model of, of the gospel is always relationship, getting to know one another, fellowship with one another. It was the first fruit of revival in the book of Acts. So we model that here, and we try to get to know one another. And so we meet throughout the week. We have different things that we do. Uh, if you want to get involved in any of that, just get with me or somebody else. Uh, but tomorrow night's normally our Monday, uh, Monday night um, home group where we fellowship, eat together, share what's on our hearts. And it just kind of takes a direction that, you know, that people take it or the Holy Spirit leads. But tomorrow we're not going to have that because of New Year's. So that is, that is canceled tomorrow. So if you're wondering where home group is tomorrow, um, it's not going to be um, taking place tomorrow. So, but Tuesday night we'll pick up um, with everything else. We have Tuesday night prayer. Uh, Wednesday, I believe, I'm not sure if it's men's or women's meeting. Men's meeting. Wednesday night. Women's, I'm sorry. Women's meeting, women's meeting. And then, um, yeah, so if you want to know what's, more, what's going on, and uh, we have a, a website, you can go on the calendar there and check out what's happening. Uh, I want to I uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. I have something on my heart that I feel like I, I want to maybe make a series out of. At least that's my plan. Um, we'll see what the Lord allows me to do, but I have... Um, an agenda, if you will, for the glory of God for 2024. And um, I think there's no better uh, ability to stir the human heart than to open people's eyes to Jesus. And uh, religion has always failed us. It always will. And we will always fall short. But if we can make a... Um, an attempt to meet God where he is, uh, which is usually where we're at, <laughs> then we'll see him in a way we've never seen him before and everything begins to change. And that's what I'm hoping for you. That's what actually your heart desires, whether you know it or not. Your heart wants something different than where you are. You can take all the years of your religious experience and all the sermonizing you've ever heard, and if it has not gotten you to the place where you want to be, then it's gotten you nowhere. Sermons do not change people. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have one of the least important roles in the body of Christ. Sermons do not change people. 
the only thing they can possibly do is open the door long enough for you to see Jesus and have him change your own heart. It's a personal thing that has to happen between you and the king. And he's such a gentleman, he's not going to push on you. He only comes in by invitation. So I, I, I want to start a series, if the Lord allows, calls in, called Encounters with the King. And hopefully we'll be going through the Bible and joining encounters with Jesus to prophetic parables that Jesus speaks about, especially in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew is deeply obsessed with the kingdom. And the kingdom was everything to the Jew. Without the kingdom, there is no rule and reign. Without the kingdom, there is no authority over life itself. The coming of the king represents the coming of a new kingdom. If the king doesn't come, the kingdom has no value. You cannot have value of the kingdom of God unless you've first seen the king. If you do not value the kingdom of God, you've never seen the king. If your current life situation is not kingdom focused, I wonder if you have ever seen the king. There's a difference between believing in the king and seeking his kingdom first. A big difference. Demons believe in the king. And they have no intention of seeking kingdom values first. But I want you to understand, we cannot first seek the kingdom until the king appears and arrives. And he already has, which means our eyes need to be open to see him. So I want to go through some prophetic realities of Scripture where people have saw the king, draw some parallels, hopefully, by the grace and the mercy of Jesus that hopefully intertwine with maybe not only our life, but our experience, challenging us to go deeper with God than we've ever been before. Because if that's not our heart, then I don't know what we're doing. Amen? I want you to understand as you study Scripture, especially in John's Gospel, but in all reality, in every gospel it's written. The stories, the parables, the things that Jesus did were prophetic statements. I know we like to read them as a string of events that were just actions of a God upon the earth, but that's not what they were, though they were that too. Nothing God does can be shown without a prophetic Understanding. John calls the miracles of Jesus specifically signs. They're insights and prophetic statements into what God's intentions are in mankind. And if you can find the sign in the wonder and the healing, you'll find the principle and the intention of the Father. This is why we need to study our word, not just read it, but to get in and study our word because within the word of God is, is the mysteries of the kingdom. And Jesus told his disciples, unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are always wrapped up in the king himself. You will not unravel a mystery of God without unraveling God himself. And you're not, you will not unravel God himself unless God himself reveals himself. But God himself will not reveal himself unless, he's, unless we want him to be revealed.
So I want to read this parable to you, and I want to connect it to a story in the Bible that may not be normally connected with most sermons. Matthew chapter 18, I want to start in verse 23, and we're going to begin with the first verse, and I'm going to draw a couple of insights from that. We'll, rat, we'll, we'll continue the rest of the story, and hopefully I can carry on with the point and not confuse you. <laughs> Amen. Pray for me. Even as you sit there, say a little prayer that God would use me to speak to your heart. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Such an amazing way to start a story. You have an account that you need to settle with God. It's not just your sin. I'm sorry, I believe in the idea that, that we need to be forgiven from sins and all these types of things and we need to be saved, but I, I believe that is the foundational beginning. I believe that that is only the, the, the starting point to the race and there's so much of our Christendom that's just reduced down to nothing more than getting men to repent of their sins, getting them saved, slapping them on the back and calling them brother and saying, now you're good. And it is such a lie. Week in, week out, churches just deal with sin, deal with sin, they deal with sin, they deal with sin, they deal with sin. There is a Savior who takes away the sin of the world. And if the sin has been removed, what left do we have in our Christianity? But the King himself. So a sin-focused Christianity has no ability to understand the kingdom of heaven. There is an account that we have to settle with God. It's not just the forgiveness of our sins. We'll see that in the understandings of Scripture. If your sins have not been forgiven, then that's the first account that you need to have reconciled. But if your sins have been forgiven, there's another account that God has that he wants to reconcile in your life. And it's the account of your will and your freedom and the precious of your life that you hold to yourself and your own family that you refuse and I refuse many times to pour out before the worthiness of God Almighty. But we owe him everything. Yet many times our Christianity is only based upon what he has given us and it does not cross over into what we're allowed to give to him. We think that for being good and moral people that we're doing God a service. No, that's the unprofitable servant part that Jesus says. Look, that's, that's your duty to do. We think if we're being a good husband to our wife that we're great moral men of God. No, that's your duty to do. You made a promise to that woman. That's your duty. Wives, if you're serving your, your husbands and, and you're doing what scripture tells you to do, you think you might, that makes you a good person, that makes you a good wife. No, that's your duty to do. We think if we're paying our tithes that we're good Christian people. No, that's your duty to do that. That's God's money anyway. There's so many things that we do and that we operate in under normal Christendom that we think if we're doing these things, we're doing okay. We're, we're treating the brothers with respect. No, that's your duty to do that. Read the book of Ephesians. So much of what we think that we're trying to, to strive for in modern Christendom is nothing more than what we're already expected to do. But there's very few times where Jesus was impressed with people in the earth. 
There's very few times where Jesus was impressed with people on the earth and none of it had to do with what their mere duty was. And most of us are sitting there scrapping out a living in Christendom that, that is basically nothing more than what we should be. At the very beginning of our salvation, we should be these things. The moment you get saved, you should automatically strive to be and automatically begin to be a moral person. Old things pass away. All things should become new. So then what is left then after that? If we've come to the place where sin is not our striving, if, if morality isn't what moves us, what is left to Christianity after that point? I think most people in Christianity today, all their concern is, is trying to get to the point where they should have been at the original point of salvation. Why do we have a problem treating people with respect? Especially those that disagree with us. The church is the worst about that. The moment someone decides that they religiously and theologically disagree with you, there's more division there than there is even amongst the heathen. We can barely even treat each other with respect and having the mind of Christ that says, esteem your brother higher than you esteem yourself. It doesn't say if your brother theologically agrees with you. It just says esteem him higher, period. No matter his beliefs. If we can't find the value in other people, I bet it's because we have yet to find the value in our own selves. Because all I have to do is watch how you treat somebody and I know how you treat your own self. You can only give what you have. If you treat people like garbage, it's because you have a improper relationship with who you are on the inside. It's a sure sign of a broken identity. My point is, is that if we're still striving for things that should be our natural reflex because of salvation, what have we done in the actual idea of what God intends for the son of God to be in the earth? What is left? If the sin has been removed, if the morality is in process, if we're growing, if things are on trajectory the way they should be, what is left to Christianity? I'll tell you what's left. Encounters with the king. That is the goal of real Christianity. Not to be free from something, but to be free to be in the presence of the one who gave you everything. The goal is to be so kingdom focused that your marriage serves the kingdom. The goal is to be so kingdom focused that your children serve the kingdom. I have so many people ask me all the time, where's the line? Where's the line between ministry and real life and family and this and that? You know what they're asking? Where can I have my family, my four, no more and still keep it separate from the kingdom of heaven? If we don't possess the wisdom to know how to integrate both, then we're living in dichotomy. We're schizophrenic believers. We compartmentalize where God has access and where he does not. Let me ask you a question. 
Will your blood family be relevant when you go to heaven? It will not. So why is it relevant now? You take care of those people the same way the Bible tells you to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan. And if you're not teaching your children in your marriage and all those types of things to do those types of things, you're not operating in a kingdom reality. Because the goal in Christendom is not the forgiveness of sins, it's to operate under the kingdom and headship and rule of the king. Do you understand that the kingdom of heaven has rules and laws? That the moment the king came, those rules began to be enacted. The moment Jesus showed up, the rules of the earth began to be moved away. This is why he said from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Why? Because when the king shows up after the old prophetic order ends, violence ensues to keep the king from being seen in people's lives. Because once the moment the king is seen, everything around him who has viewed him changes. You cannot have a kingdom-based person who has not seen the king. You'll have Christians who operate under the forgiveness of sin, but they do not operate under the kingdom reality of the headship of the king. Because being forgiven is is merely being touched. Seeing him changes everything. So many Christians have never seen him. You know what I call it? And whether you disagree with me, it doesn't really matter. I'm not saying I'm 100% on this, but it's my opinion. But I think what we have today in modern Christianity is what we call John's gospel. They're baptized under John's gospel. You remember the story in Acts where Apollos, he was preaching the gospel of John, Aquila and Priscilla meet him. And they say, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? He said, no. He said, well, what gospel are you preaching? He said, John's baptism, which is the what? What is John's baptism? The forgiveness of sins. And this is what most Christianity is operating under. They're not operating under the principles of the kingdom. They're operating under John's baptism. You know how we know we have a sin-based culture? Is that when someone sins against you, you make it about the sin that they committed against you. That's how you know you have a forgiveness-based culture in your own head. You're more concerned with the sin that was committed than the king who forgave the sin. You've not seen the king. If you have unforgiveness in your life, you've not seen the king. Did you hear what I just said? You're more concerned about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is John's baptism. You're more concerned about what was done wrong instead of who did what right. We're not focused on the king. We're focused on the sin. We feel like in actual practicality that the sins that people create are bigger than God himself. We will not say that, but that's how we respond. Does that make sense to you? Who did what wrong so that way I can justify why I'm right? That is arrogance. My Bible says love covers a multitude of transgressions. And if your love doesn't cover a multitude of transgressions, you do not have, I'm sorry, the love of God. Love your enemies, the king says. Do you understand that enemies are not people who just merely disagree with you? 
Enemies does not mean the people who irritate you. People irritate you because of your lack of maturity. You want me to say that one again? Find the people that irritate you in your life, and that's the exposure of you, not them. Because you irritate God, but he doesn't respond to you in any other way than acceptance and love and pursuit. Isn't that right? Tell me you don't irritate the Father sometimes. You ever read the story where Jesus sighed or groaned in his spirit? You know what that really looks like in the practical life? Like, uh, that's what that means. And if you don't think God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, you need to read the Bible. And if he did that back in, there's times where God the Father over your life goes, oh, are you kidding me? He may not say that part, but he definitely sighs. Like, how long are you going to not believe? How long will I have to work with you? How long will I have to, to be with you before you believe? People who irritate you expose you. God does not lose his Christianity, though he's not a Christian. I'll say it, just want to make it clear. God doesn't lose his divinity because of you irritating him. We step out of our faith when people irritate us because we've not been made like the king. Well, how do you get made like the king? You behold him. You wanna see it? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, period. The kingdom of heaven has its representation in the king himself. You cannot separate the two. To serve and put the kingdom first is to serve and put the king first. If the king says forgive, it doesn't matter how you feel, you forgive. If the king says release, then you release. Why? Because the laws of the kingdom are more detrimental than breaking the laws of the American code. They're more real and they're more lasting and they're more eternal. Yet we fear the government of this country more than we fear God himself. People who say that, you know, God's this big lovey thing that we shouldn't fear, no. The idea can be understood in our practical sense. How many of you love America in the, in, in the idea of, of America? You're a patriot in the sense of, of certain things and certain values and certain God. I'm not saying you agree with everything, but you love this country, but at the same time, you fear the law of this country, right? It's the same thing with God. You love him, but you fear his laws. You fear his kingdom. You fear his ways. Why? Because in the ways of God, yes, there's mercy concerning sin, but there's judgment concerning works. Go read your Bible. Matthew 25, Matthew 24, all these places in scripture where Jesus talks about these different things, starts talking about different parables. He says, your works are gonna be judged. Every idle word's gonna be judged. Your salvation was free, but your sonship will cost you everything. You don't have to earn your salvation, but you do have to work for the kingdom that you now pledge allegiance to. Isn't that why James is in the Bible? I want you to understand as we go forward, hopefully in this series, that the king determines the kingdom. 
This is why Jesus' first message that he ever preached after he came out endued with power from John's baptism, he left John's baptism for a reason. And so should we. At some point in your life, it should not be about the wrongs that I've committed or the wrongs somebody else has committed. We should foundationalize the idea and the reality and the permanence of the blood of God that takes away sin. And he moved on from that. And the first thing he comes, that comes out of his mouth is repent. And that word does not mean to, to apologize for transgression. That word means to change how you think so that you can properly understand what's about to be taught. Because if you apply John's baptism and the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament and what Jesus is about to say, you're gonna proper, improperly define God himself. And it takes a view of God as God to be able to define God, not a pre-idea view of God that we've, just, we've created in our own sense. And that's everything that John put the period on of the Old Testament is your wrong idea of God. John was the last prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus was the first prophet of the New Testament. The last prophet of the New Testament dealt with the finality of sin. The first prophet of the New Testament brought about the reality of the kingdom. Have you ever heard the gospel? Let's preach the gospel. Do you know what Jesus calls the gospel? He says it's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of forgiveness of sins. It's not the gospel of love, though it's included. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom has a king. You cannot have a kingdom without a king. And when the king shows himself in an ulterior kingdom, an opposed kingdom, an anti-kingdom, he's there to take over. He's not there to make peace. This is why he says, I've come to bring sword on the earth. It's not fighting governments. It's toppling the idea and the kingdom reality of a self-based life where God exists to serve your morality instead of you existing for his pleasure. So much of Christianity is nothing more than God servicing your needs, what you call prayer. That infantile and immature, should we start there? Absolutely. Should we stay there? No. Jesus' greatest prayers, which were recorded, were prayed for other people. And frankly, as a king, the one crucial time in his life where he prayed for himself he did not get the answer he wanted. And yet we expect something different. He wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When God settles your account as a slave, he makes you a son. Once he makes you a son, John 1, 12, there's an accountability to an encounter. There's an accountability to an encounter. Let me finish the story before, hopefully I can, as we read this, it'll all make sense. When he began to settle up, a man was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the money to repay, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the slave fell on his knees. It's a good place to be. It's where usually where you see who the king really is. And begged him saying, be patient with me and I'll repay you everything. And the master of that slave filled with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. 
So don't worry about it. God doesn't need your money. <laughs> he just wants to see if you're going to give it. He doesn't need anything. He existed world without end, eternal past without us. But he just didn't want to be alone in his trinity forever. Because fathers want family. That's what they want. True fathers. And the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and started choking him and saying, pay me back what you owe me. So his fellow slaves fell down and kept begging him, saying, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And he was unwilling. Instead, he went off and threw the man in prison until he paid back everything he owed. So when the fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply distressed and they went back to their master and reported in detail all that had happened. Summoning the first slave, his master said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt and you pleaded with me. Wasn't it necessary also for you to show mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed mercy to you? Enraged, the master handed him over to the torturers to be paid back everything he owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless each of you from your own heart forgives his brother. Let me, let me, let me draw, derive some, some principles from this. This isn't just talking about forgiveness, though it incorporates that. <clears throat> Here's the idea of the story. Once you have an encounter with the king, the king expects you to act as he acts. Does that make sense? How many of you would say that because you're saved, you've had an encounter with the king, yet you don't act like the king acts? To every encounter, there's, there is a, an accountability. The idea is, is that God so believes in himself and his love and his forgiveness that one cannot come to him with that kind of debt and be forgiven and have that person not wanna be like the one who forgave him. In God's mind, to encounter him is to be like him. To see him and his nature unfold should, should draw out of us something that makes us want to be like the thing that we encountered. Show me a Christian who says they've had an encounter with God, yet they don't have any desire to be like the king they've encountered, and I will show you an imposter. A pig who was merely washed from its filth only returned back to the mire. The, the, the word of God uses... The, the, the analogy of a dog returning to his vomit. You can wash a pig over and over and over again. The pig can live under the reign of God. They do it in church every week. That's why some people find worship so liberating because it washes them from the filth that they've been under all week long, yet the nature is not changed. They've not truly encountered the man who turns them into a sheep, who transforms them from a goat to the lamb of God. The likeness of the lamb. This is why the Bible says the mind of Christ is this. In other words, you think like Jesus. What did Jesus think like? Not about himself. How much of our lives and our thoughts are consumed with us? I 
You'll know you're coming into the likeness of the king and the true Christianity when your entire mental consumption is nothing more than kingdom presence. How can I be kingdom today for you, Lord? How can I honestly represent you today in my marriage, in my kids, in my job? Today, Father, how can I build your kingdom Somehow, some way, in some whisper, some tone, he'll say, love my people. Know what he told Peter when he was restored? Strengthen your brothers. Peter, don't make it about you again. Don't tear them down. Strengthen them. Don't accuse them. Strengthen them. So many things that you think need to be changed in some people's lives. There's nothing that needs to be changed. It's just certain things need to be strengthened. You know, I have a lot of people who think they discern very well and they're really, really blind. Really blind. Really blind. But boy, they think they can see. You know what they can see? Problems. Guess what? That's the same thing devils can see. Congratulations. You have the same prophetic tendencies as a demon. Just because you can see what's wrong does not mean you have a spirit of discernment. In fact, it shows that you do not. Discernment is being able to discern what is good. And then by that, you'll automatically know what is evil. But you don't focus on the evil, you focus on the good. The discernment of God is that he found a pearl inside of you. He dug through past all the mud and dirt to find it. And if we can't do the same thing for people, we don't have the mind of the king. I have people come to me all the time, like, you know, this person's creating problems, blah, 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 you know. And really, it's nothing more than this person trying to operate in their gift. They're just so young in it. They just don't know what they're doing. And they, they need to be strengthened. They don't need to be corrected. They need to be strengthened. But, this, but people who, oh, they want to correct them. It's like, no. Oh. You don't correct a child who's on a bike trying to learn how to ride. You strengthen and encourage what they're doing that's right. They already know what they did wrong. Yeah, I fell over. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> are we going to focus on falling over or are we going to focus on getting back up? <laughs> We're going to focus on getting back up. How come we don't treat people like that? See, the king, the kingdom is always compared to the king. You want to know how to be a kingdom person? Behold the king. The king is the defining authority by which all things kingdom are to be compared. The king is the authority by which all things kingdom should be compared. When we read the story of Revelation, John's encounter with the king, which we'll get to that hopefully in the series, we're seeing John encounter the king in a way he's never encountered him before. Right? Right? But see, John's understanding of the book of Revelation is simply this. Everybody wants to know the, the, the beast and the system and the mark and all that. You know what? All that's irrelevant. It's going to happen whether you understand it or not. I, 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 I got into that 20 years ago trying to figure out all, and I was like, this is stupid. The thing I need to focus on is the king is coming. Because here's the thing. The entire book of Revelation can be comprised as this. 
John sees the king coming and all of hell doesn't want it to happen. Why? Because John said in his, his epistle, when we see him, we'll be like him. So the whole belching of hell in the book of Revelation is nothing more than, than hell's weak attempt to keep the world from seeing the king coming. Why? Because people change when they see the king. That's it. Do you know how to get rid of your lusts and your distractions and your selfishness and your, your issues? You see the king. And it'll all go away. You know what we do though? We try to get the king to remove those types of issues. No. No, you see him and those issues are removed. You try to pray to get these things removed from your life and you know what you're doing? You know what you're really, really doing in that moment? You're centering your entire relationship with God on the sin again and you're ignoring the king who's already beat it. If you just go to the king, all this stuff will be removed. The religious system puts it backwards. It wants you to focus on what you did wrong and have to go through this proper repentance type of an issue instead of just coming to him. The Bible says, 1 John says, if, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just. Is God faithful? Then in any time when you confess your sins, is there, any, is there any moment where he will not? So then why do you make it about that? The whole goal of hell is to keep you and I from seeing the king. Lusts, distractions, money problems, marriage problems, anything demonic going on in your life is not an attack against you. It's an attack against you seeing the man who freed you already. This is the good news of the kingdom, that we have a king. Kings rule by dictatorship, praise God. We do not want the kingdom to be a democracy. Do you know why? You and I would mess it up. We'd vote the wrong way. And given time, we'd even vote out God. The king is a dictator. The only reason we don't see him as this way right now is because he's temporarily allowing the, the minor will of our lives to be uh, superior to his in this temporal reality. But there will be a moment where our will will fade away and it will be the king who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And this God that you're used to manipulating and I'm used to manipulating in our prayers to get him to do what we want will be so foreign to the, God, to the one who shows up, who rules your life with a rod of iron, says, you will not do this. What do you think is gonna happen in the millennium? Do you believe in a millennial reign? Of all the people that are born who still have to receive Christ and the devil's loosed upon the face of the earth. Do you think that there's just gonna be this peace, love and, hip, and hippiness just because you know, people choose to love God? No, he's gonna rule the world from Jerusalem as a dictator and he's going to keep certain things from happening because he's the law. Will will not be there until the devil's re-released into the earth and then God will pull back his reign to let people see, uh, reveal their own hearts. Who are you for, me or him?
and it will be the final battle. It'll be the final reality. When we all go to that final kingdom, that final heaven, where we live with the king forever. I do not want to be unfamiliar with obedience before I get to the kingdom that commands it. Your free will is a mirage. Compared to the eternal timeline, it is a blip at best. And yet we define everything on it. No, the free will was given so that it can be surrendered once again. The reason the king came as a son who serves. The servant willingly sells himself again to his master after being freed. Salvation freed every man, atheist, heathen, agnostic, believer, unbeliever, Salvation freed all of mankind. Getting saved is the free person coming back to the king saying, you gave me my freedom back. I willingly indenture myself as a slave back unto you. That's salvation. Being sanctified, not purified. We mix, we mix those words. Sanctified means to be set aside for one specific use. Being sanctified unto God for his use and his use alone. God did not save you to fight the sins he already forgave you from for the rest of your life. That is merry-go-ground Christianity, which will end in nothing more than you drilling your own grave spitting into a cyclone of sin and, 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 uh, and hopelessness and failure until you bury yourself. Someone who has a sin-focused life does not need an enemy to fight them. They'll do it themselves. Amen. Because you'll never be a good enough Christian for the devil. I can assure you of that. The voice of accusation is so familiar to most of us that we actually think it's the voice of the Holy Spirit. No, it's a false imposter telling you what you did wrong without giving you the power to actually do what it's telling you to do. The Holy Spirit will convict, which means he'll lead you to the power that gives you the power to obey. He'll give you hope that obedience in the spirit is possible because it's not you living your life anymore. It's Christ in you. If being forgiven does not change us into the nature of the one who forgave, then we did not have a revelation of the forgiver. We had an encounter with his ability. Having an encounter with the ability of God does not mean you're changed into his likeness and into his nature. We know that this is possible because the story indicates this, that you can have an encounter with God and not act like him afterwards. The goal was not the encounter and the forgiveness. No, that's what we've made it. The whole story rests upon the fact that God expects an encounter with him to change our actions afterwards. And if they have not, 
If they have not, then we are accountable to the original crime that he forgave. Have you ever heard that preached before? There is an accountability to forgiveness. This is why the Bible says, if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. There's an entire group of Christianity that's going to burn in hell after having tasted the mercy of God because they refused to forgive the sins that were committed against them. They will be held back to the original fault against the man they committed it from. And though they felt like they were forgiven, God expects an encounter with him to make you like him. And if it's not, then my friend, you need to be saved. I don't care how many years you've spent in church. That means nothing to God. 80 years of salvation is nothing to the ancient of days. Nothing. And it's certainly nothing to boast in. Paul says, I will not. I boast in the fact that I am weak. And I need the king. You know why? Hopefully, prayerfully, we'll get to it. Because he had an encounter with the king after serving him for many years. The fact that Jesus' name is Emmanuel means that the king has arrived and is still present in your life. And his message is still the same. Change how you view your marriage. Change how you view your money. Change how you view your life. Change how you view your family. Change how you view your church. Change how you view your job. All of those are gifts only to serve the kingdom and the king. And if they are not, it does not matter what sort of theological American selfish compartmentalization you put it in. It is against kingdom. I love my kids, but I will drag them to everything we do, whether they love it or whether they hate it, because they need to learn that the kingdom is over and above their wants and rights. And if I don't teach them that, I fail as a father. If we don't teach our children, our wives, that church community, that life together is more important than anything because that's what heaven's gonna be like, then we failed in kingdom reality. Because Jesus clarified the blood family issue. Blood family means nothing to me unless those blood family are doing the will of the Father. Then it means everything to me. The kingdom can only be properly defined by the king himself. And Jesus' entire life was about demonstrating the, the rules, the practicality, and the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Everything he did was a representation of kingdom on the earth. That's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth. It doesn't say on, it says in. There's a reason it says in, because you're made of dirt. The kingdom has to be inside of you. It has to be done in you. The kingdom reality has to be done in us as it's being done in heaven. The sun is a perfect demonstration of what the kingdom looks like as it invades an ulterior kingdom. 
Jesus coming was an invasion. We were the prize. And now that he's gained us, he is the prize. Amen? To have a revelation of Jesus is to have him challenge the mindset about which we currently live in. Every time you encounter Jesus in a new way, you've seen it in your past, right? God's encountered you in a new way. Everything in your mind changed. Like I've been thinking, thinking all wrong. I've been seeing this all wrong. Remember when God finally told you to forgive that person? You realize that? You're like, I've been seeing this thing all wrong. You remember that? Remember that moment? To have an encounter with the king means he challenges the mind by which you perceive him with. He has to challenge the mind by which you perceive him with. I don't care if you perceive him properly right now. There's a coming revelation of who he is that will challenge where you're at right now. And he's gonna say, come up higher. The same thing happened to John. Nobody in this room, especially me, has gotten to a point where they fully know the king. Your current idea of who he is will be something you have to repent of. And yet you hold it dear as if it's absolute, absolute truth. And the moment somebody who's a little farther down the road challenges where you're at, you get offended. Why? Because you don't really love the kingdom and the king. You love your idea of him. The idea of the king has to come from a repentant state of mind by encountering him as he is. And I've had to do that a hundred times in my life and I'll have to do it a hundred more if Jesus gives me life. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm gonna read 1 John chapter 3, verse two. It says, beloved, we now are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we will be like. We don't know what we'll be like. But we do know this, when he appears, we will be like him. Do you know that John spent the most time with Jesus out of anybody? And yet he even says, I don't even know what we're gonna be like, and I've seen the man. (laughs) But I know this, when we see him, we'll be like him. What he is, I don't know. I've encountered it many times, but I cannot define it. And you and I will be equally as undefinable Because love is never to be understood, it's only to be experienced. Nobody can define love outside of the name of Jesus. If love is defined by any other means, it is a false characterization of God himself, because God is love. If you think love is anything outside of how God would act, your idea of love is perverted. Which means in that area of your life, you're practically and mentally serving a demon. You can't serve a demon that called love that's opposite to God and still be right with God who is love. Every major man of God in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ, when they encountered God, we'll go through the, hopefully prayerfully we'll go through it. When they had an encounter with God, they had to rethink everything they thought about him. Everyone without exception. So where does that leave you and me? 
It leaves us needing to behold the king. We need our eyes open and our ears open. Jesus prophesied of his generation. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you having eyes to see and ears to hear and you cannot see and you cannot hear. Our eyes being open doesn't mean that we see accurately what sin or what was wrong or what was right or who to vote for, or which president's accurate. No, having our eyes open has everything to be able to see Jesus as he is. He talks to the church of the Laodicea to have open eyes. Why? So they can see him. But these are Christians that Jesus is talking to in the church of Laodicea. Christian believers who serve God, messianic people, touched by the Holy Spirit, filled with power. And he says, you're naked, you're poor, you're wretched, you're miserable, and you're blind. Does that make sense? All right, I want you, uh, do you make it to Luke chapter 10? Uh, Abe, would you grab me another thing of water, please? Thank you. Verse 38 I'm gonna finish hopefully in the next five to 10 minutes, 10 minutes, let's say hopefully 10 minutes. Give me grace though. It came to pass that as they went, that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him in her house. I mean, you know the story. These people were friends, thank you. Jesus comes to their house. Martha receives him. How many know there's nothing wrong with that? The gift of hospitality is actually a qualification among leaders. You know that, understand that, right? You understand that what she was doing wasn't wrong. And that's the most of Christianity is that what we're doing many times isn't wrong. It's just not the best. Jesus clearly identifies there's a good and best in this situation. Can we not see that in scripture? So he says, name Martha came to her house and she had a sister called Mary, which sat at his feet and heard his word. So Martha's over here busy serving God. Jesus, or Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. One's trying to minister, listen, catch me now. One's trying to minister to God. The other one is getting ministry from God. Do you understand it takes the, f- the first to happen before you can actually do the latter? But the spirit of Martha puts it exactly backwards. Because I'm gonna show you in scripture that what Martha was doing wasn't wrong, it was out of order. Because in the end, Mary did the same thing Martha did. It's just, you have to go through let- letting the king serve you before you have the authority to be able to serve him. Do you know how much ministry is, is, is done today out of the Martha spirit? You know how many churches are established under the Martha spirit? What they're doing is not wrong. And does God use it? Yeah, God uses donkeys and mules in the Old Testament to prophesy to prophets. Just because God's using you doesn't mean you're right with him. Let me tell you that right now. Ask me how I know. Just because God is using you does not mean you're right with him. Just because you hold a microphone, have a ministry, have a belief system, that does not make you right with God. If you pay attention to any leadership in Christendom over the last 50 years, you're gonna find major men and women of God who absolutely got exposed in horrible sin being used by the Holy Spirit the whole time. 
I mean, gross, immoral darkness, yet prophetically accurate men who could tell you your social security number and never miss. But closet homosexuals at the same time. This is why the church at at large will be deceived when the Antichrist comes on the scene because we care more about what God can do than the king himself. We'll run to conferences and circles and healings this and prophetic that and evangelist this because we love the hype and the dopa hit of that charisma. When Mary found out what was best. See, the encounter with a king brings a pause to all earthly needs. Mary had a place in her life where when she encountered the king, it brought a pause to everything. She felt like she had to do nothing. She was at total rest. She felt no false responsibility to work for God. She only felt the need to be with him. A true encounter with the king will bring such a peace that the Martha itch inside of you will completely be removed. It drowns the human need for endorsement that comes from striving. I can always tell whenever a man or a woman I get around needs human endorsement. It's very obvious. I give it to them because that's where they're at. But I pray that one day what they get, it would be ultimately from God. See, the encounter that Mary had postures our hearts to be able to finally rest and receive, where before we were simply busy with much service. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 12. This is later in the story. Six days before Passover, this is right before Jesus is about to die. This is later in the story. Jesus had already been to Martha Martha and Mary's house. Mary was already there sitting at his feet. Are you following me? Jesus goes back to the same house, served by the same woman who did not change whatsoever because we see her doing the exact same thing. What does it say? Jesus came into the, to Bethany where Lazarus which was, whom he raised from the dead. There made him a supper and Martha, what? Still serving. See, we equate some sort of spiritual maturity with how many years we've served. I'm telling you, time means nothing to God. The God you serve exists outside of time. Time is only our reality, it's not his. It's only something we arrogantly throw out because we wanna be validated. Do we, do we value experience? Sure. Do we value gray-haired wisdom? Absolutely. If it's found in the way of righteousness, yes. They made a supper. <clears throat> Martha served. Lazarus was one of them. He sat at the table. And then here comes Mary. I want, you to sh- I want to show you what happens whenever you finally allow Jesus to show himself to you. It changes something in your heart where you're not looking at what you can get from him anymore now, that's where you start, but you end with you giving him everything you have. So here comes Mary, and what does she do? She takes the precious 
of her life, the most precious thing she had, a year's wages, which probably most scholars agree that was reserved for her own burial. Each person was responsible for their own death. It's a prophetic statement that she was no longer saying, I'm not concerned about where I'm going or where I'm gonna die, where I'm gonna be or who's gonna take care of me anymore. I give everything that was for me to you. Because once I break this, I don't know who's gonna take care of my burial, but I'll take care of yours. She got the mind of Christ. She got the mind of the king because she encountered him. Martha could say, I encountered him too. But Martha's box remained unbroken. And there's many Marthas in here where you've served Jesus a long time, but your box still remains unbroken. Your prayers are about God fixing you and fixing your family and your needs. and Instead of saying, I don't really care about all that, you'll take care of it however you want. She broke it on his feet and she wiped her, her, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Let me say this. The first time when Mary sat at Jesus' feet, in the first story, she had the same box. How come she didn't use it then? Because she was still getting a revelation of who he was. But once we have a revelation of who he really is, God expects your box, my box, to be broken at his feet. Once you have a revelation of forgiveness, you have the expectation from the king to break your box of forgiveness on the one who hurt you. Once you encounter salvation, you have the requirement of the king to bring that same gospel to even your enemies. Once you have an encounter with Jesus, he expects you to begin to act like him. The same jar, Mary didn't break it the first time she saw him. And this shows us the posture that Christianity has to go through cycles of seeing him to be able to be made like him. I believe it's in, if I'm, if I'm correct, Mark chapter eight, where Jesus has to heal and touch the man twice. I preached on it a couple weeks ago. It wasn't that Jesus was incapable the first time, it's that Christianity has to properly see him by varying degrees. And then every time we see him clearly, we're, we're expected to not go back to the same life he, he freed us from. You know why most people fall away after they've been forgiven? Because they don't like the rules of the kingdom that forgave them. Do you understand that accountability in scripture is 100% a viable issue, yet if I actually got down to the nitty-gritty of each one of you individually, I'd find that you're probably accountable to no one. Most Christians are only accountable to the voice they hear in their head. Well, let me ask you this. If your mind's not completely renewed, is anybody's fully renewed in here? 
then how can you trust the voice in your head unless you, unless you correct it with somebody else and be like, this is what I'm hearing. Can you pray about this? Can you see what I'm, if I'm right? It's, it's, it's biblical, it's scriptural. Even prophetic people are supposed to biblically take the prophecies to the body and to other prophets and test them before they release them. Which is why we had the debacle in 2020 with all these untested, unsubmitted prophets making a mess of the prophetic industry in the church, which ironically is the, is the industry we need the most of right now. Because the devil attacks what God is trying to do. You know why most people fall away? Because they don't have accountability in their life. They have nobody in their life to hold them accountable to the thing that God asks them to do. They don't vocalize it with anybody, especially men. They wanna internalize everything and think they can do it on their own. How many male friendships do you call and say, bro, I am really struggling right now and I need you to hold me accountable to this? Or do you just try to push through on your own and then end up stagnant in the end? 99% of men do that in the church. Because we're only accountable to ourselves and if we're accountable to the kingdom, then we're accountable to one another. The spirit of Cain will always ask, am I, am I responsible for that guy over there? No, that's his business. And God's like, are you, are you sure? Don't call someone brother if you're not willing to be accountable for their life. Do you understand this? When a lack of accountability happens, the encounter with the king fades. Why? Because the king works through people. It's always good whenever we want to have the king work through ourselves. Oh, that was really the Lord, brother. As I was talking, man, the voice of the Holy Spirit was really coming out of me. Oh, really? You mean God speaks through people? Yeah. Oh, it's convenient when he speaks through you, but what happens whenever somebody else brings the word of God to you and you don't listen? We like it when he uses us, but when somebody else is, oh, well, that's, I, it's a personal relationship, bro. You can't touch that. It's a personal relationship with me. Oh, wait, wait. You mean you can invade somebody else's personal relationship and call it the Holy Spirit, but nobody has the right to do it back to you. Convenient. You're destined for deception. You're destined for deception. This is why we push community so much in this church, because you need people around you that can say, mm, don't think I, I really agree with that. And you know what? It's not until somebody does that to you that you realize how much pride you have or do not have. Show me somebody who's, who's who in, the, in the moment of correction and I'll show you where their true humility is. See, we cannot break the vial of our life upon the kingdom until we see the futility of our own. So many of us have not broken the vial and the precious like Mary did because we still value the kingdom of this world. We still value our own life. We still value our own death. Her holding onto that box in the original story was still her still valuing some part of her life that I've got to take care of my life. I've got to take care of my sins, my debt. My, I've got to pay my dues in this society. I've got to, and when she broke that on Jesus, she lost everything. She was completely at his mercy. And you know, there's very few women that Jesus honors in scripture. And this is one of the times. She, he says, she's chosen what's best. I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask myself, are you really choosing what's best? Or do you still have the box? You're saved, you're, you've had some encounters with God, you've sat at his feet, but 
that second encounter where you're like, okay, okay. It's the kingdom, I get it now. It's not my life, it's not my job, it's not my family. We think they're our kids. We say, oh, my kids, they're not your kids. I don't know whoever told you. That's a wrong concept. If they're your kids, then God has grandchildren. And God doesn't have grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. They're not your kids. They're on loan. They're not yours. How you raise them? You're raising God's children. God's children. He owns them. He gave them the spark of life. Mothers, you think you created that? You have not the ability the spark of life that brought, brought the heartbeat into that, that electrical pulse, that sinoatrial node that science still can't figure out where the electricity comes from. It came from God. Without that, you have no kids. We hold on to things that we think we own. They're not ours, Mary's encounter with the king. I'll close with this. Mary's encounter with the king made her just like him. Because this, this act of complete sacrifice and complete surrender was the same prophetic act Jesus was about to commit for her. They were on the same spiritual wavelength. I give my all and I prepare you for your burial. I sacrifice my all because you're about to sacrifice your all for me. So there's a time in the beginning where you have to sit at Jesus' feet and let him minister to you, but there will come a time if you sit there long enough where he's gonna require you to minister unto him. Most people don't ever make it to that form of Christendom. Where you stop defining life as yours you stop defining family and job and career. It has simply been summed up in the kingdom. There's no distinction. There's no separation. There's not my family in the church. And if there is, that's your choice. But you'll be greatly surprised when you get to, to get to heaven. It's amazing how much compartmentalization we allow because we've not seen the king. It's amazing how many things, how many times we glance across the room and see what's wrong in somebody and go, I don't really know if I wanna hang out with those people. God might make certain that those people are your neighbors in eternity. Be careful if you don't like me. You might see a whole lot of me in heaven. Oh, he'll do it. <clears throat> love me now and then you can be on the other side of the kingdom then <laughs> God loves all his children if we can't then we've never seen him isn't that what the Bible says you love God whom you can't see how can you say you love your brother or you can't Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Encounters with the king 
The man in the beginning had an encounter with, with the king, and the king expected him to be like him. I forgave you, you encountered me, now I expect the same. Mary had an encounter with Jesus, and he expected the same. I gave all for you, you give all for me. She said, yes, Lord. Where are you at? Where are you? Or are you just still satisfied under John's gospel? Well, you're just happy if you feel like you're forgiven again. You can stand with me, please. Forgive me, I went four minutes longer. <clears throat> As I said in the beginning, sermons don't change people. I'm not gonna have an altar call because it's just something that has to be chosen with just you and Jesus. Beholding him Sometimes can come at an altar, but most of the time beholding him and seeing him in the, in, the, in the posture of Mary, it's just you and him. It's just you and him. And you decide whether you make time for that or not. You know, you know what I recommend to you? That when you go to spend time with Jesus, that you don't pull your Bible out until the end. Because so many people read the word of God as their time with Jesus. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that what good does a mass load of theological understanding do in a carnal mind? Paul says the letter kills. The spirit gives life. Reading the word of God outside of the spirit will only cause you to see God in a way that he's not. I suggest you start with worship and adoration. And then once you finally are into his presence, then you ask the Holy Spirit to take you through the scriptures. Because then the Holy Spirit, who, has the, who, who searches all things, even the depths of God, will show you who God really is. But some of us, our minds are so jacked that we've even lost the ability to, to encounter the Holy Spirit in presence. Our minds just race in prayer, and so therefore we feel dis distracted and frustrated. We have such a lack of self-control in our own brain that when we sit down to pray, we can't even access his presence. When's the last time in your own personal time you've really sat in the presence of Jesus? For most Christians, it's been a minute. Oh, you thought coming to church was gonna be, be, be the thing you needed to do. <laughs> you are the church, my friend. An address on a building is not a church. The ecclesia was never a building, it's a people. And if the glory of God doesn't fill the church, the temple, which is what we sang about earlier, which is you, then God's not welcome in his own house. Corporate presence comes just because some people are hungry for God and he comes for them and everybody else happens to feel it. But whenever you can get God to show up on your own, in your own quiet place, you know he's not there for anybody but who? But you. That is so special that he shows up there just for you. Amen? Pray this with me, Father.
Open my eyes. Open my ears. And open my heart that I would have an encounter with the king. Help me. I'm not able, but you are. Encounter me and give me the grace to obey the encounter you give. In Jesus' name, amen.